Welcome to Conversations with Leaders. I'm Jake Burns, an enterprise strategist for AWS. Continuing the conversation with Jonathan Allen and Thomas Blood, we dive into specific chapters of their new book, Reaching Cloud Velocity. Last week, we ended with Thomas saying, but as a leader, and the book is for leaders, you have to recreate the vision and help people reconnect to their passion. Be developers and engineers again. I definitely found that to be true. Um, and, and I think there's there's several things here as well. And, and it's, um, you know, it's an important subject because one of the first problems that leaders face um, oftentimes in, in driving big transformational uh, projects like this is, you know, getting people who are used to doing things, you know, a certain way to embrace this new way. And that's definitely true with, with large-scale cloud adoption in the enterprise. And, and very specifically with kind of the infrastructure and infrastructure engineers, I would say probably kind of where the biggest issue tends to happen. So h- how do we get these folks who, you know, they maybe they see this as you're asking me to engineer myself out of a job. Like, why should I go along with this? As a leader, how do you how do you influence them to kind of see the, the, the real situation as I see it is this is an exciting journey that's going to propel your career and make your job more interesting, get you closer to the business, actually solving real business problems rather than kind of, you know, what you've been doing up until now, which is, you know, stacking servers and installing operating systems and the like. Right. And, I, you know, the, the fear of infrastructure leaders and their teams can, can be that, Jake. And as you said, you know, it is an exciting journey. But what I also say, and, and we talk about this in the book, is, you know, when I was putting teams together, what I've, there's no, you know, the people talk about this full stack engineer concept, like, you know, she or he knows everything from that front end interface through to the back end, through to the infrastructure, through to the cabling type. And I'm like, you know what, uh, th- th- I'm sure some of those folks exist, but there's not many on the planet. So it's typically in my experience, when you look at putting these teams together, infrastructure engineers have a phenomenally exciting part to play on this journey. I mean, if you look at a typical eng- you know, difference between an engineer and developer, then a developer, yeah, loves the business logic, the programming logic, the data, the interface, whether it's programmatic or human. And that infrastructure engineer, they, they bring massive experience of actually the operating system element, load balancing, DNS, active directory, IP addressing, firewall rules, patching, you know, image rotation. And actually, when you move to this infrastructure as code, what I've found is that software engineers actually want to work with somebody who can help them do really slick infrastructure as code to, you know, uh, bring in this immutable infrastructure, bring in and, and help them, you know, understand A-B testing, for example, through, you know, the load balancer and working with them. And very often, you know, segregation of duty is also an additional uh, aspect in highly regulated entities. Um, and, you know, bringing these teams, these people together in one team is very symbiotic and it is more exciting. You know, that that infrastructure engineer is no longer going to be spending their life upgrading hardware every two or three or four years, as you very often do. It's much more exciting to be on that product team, developing a product that's going to be in the hands of a customer than being, you know, stuck in a data center. I had a software engineer approach me and said, you know, you're, I'm an expert in whatever he was an expert in, and you're making me a beginner. That feels terrible. You know, I don't want to be a beginner. And I looked at him and I said, you know, the way you think, you think like an expert and I'm giving you more tools. You're not becoming a beginner with something. You're actually getting more tools into your toolbox. And I want that thinking, that experience that Jonathan just talked about so that you can solve problems in a much faster and better way. 
Yeah. Um, I think, you know, pair programming for me is like one of the supercharged things, by the way, to unlock that. You know, what, it was probably about the second or third team I put together. I put one of, you know, a Linux engineer who had a, like a phenomenal experience into the new cloud team. He was doing pair programming. And I said to him, I said, how are you finding it? And the reaction was not what I expected, right? I thought he would be really excited about being in this team and learning the flow, the new, but he had had to unlearn, he was unlearning what he had learned previously to then take that previous knowledge and turn it into something even more powerful. And that's a change curve right there, right? And it, you know, my change curve happens to be about two seconds. Some people's is a lot longer and you've still got to build yourself back up to be even better than you were before. And that takes time and it takes understanding and it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that embracing cloud is, is good for, um, let's just use the example of infrastructure engineers, like for their life, for their job, for their career, for all of the above. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. Um, it, it does it does make the job more interesting. They tend to make more money, like I said, closer to the business, all of these things. But we still have customers who uh, who are leading organizations, either leading infrastructure teams or leading IT teams or, or maybe leading you know an entire company um, that, that still are struggling a bit with how to articulate that message to their folks who may be resisting. And, you know, this is an area where we spend a lot of time, you know, working with customers. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on kind of what are, what are some of the key things for leaders to, to do to influence those folks? And also, does everyone need to come along in the journey or will, you know, does it have to include everyone or will there be people who don't, don't make the cut? Well, I, I think it starts with, um, you know, again, that idea of the vision. What's that, what's that bold goal that you're going for as a business? And articulating that very, very clearly to everyone in the business, not just, by the way, engineers, but the marketing people and HR and really everyone, because you want everyone pulling in that direction. And once you've declared that bold vision, that goal that, that everyone can rally behind, because it's about rallying you know, your resources on a common future. Once you've done that, uh, then you have to over communicate. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I did not do well <laughs> in my transformation journey is have our leadership team clearly articulate all the little victories along the way. Every time you have a success, you must celebrate it and celebrate the people because they took personal risk, right? They, they're learning something new. They're doing something that's outside their comfort zone. We should celebrate that every time to do it. Right. So as a leader, you know, I think it would be great once a month or twice a month to have a video broadcast to talk about this is the goal. This is still the goal. It's still bold. And here are all the things we've done along the way. And, you know, this person did this amazing job to help us get there. So it's about validating people, right? So it's interesting. You have this, this strategy. This is very abstract and very, you know, business oriented. You have to connect it back almost to the individual person. It's about the people in the organization to make it happen. Yeah, totally agree with that. And I think also you're, you're, what you're talking about is having a mission. This is an opportunity for leaders to kind of rally folks together under kind of a unified um, goal that is ambitious, um, but achievable, right? And in my experience, that, that could really bring a team together, you know, unlike anything else. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that it's not necessarily just about sort of top down telling everyone what they need to do. It's about creating that team spirit of the people that are doing the work together where they help each other. Right. Right. This is, so I actually think people are afraid of cloud and change and technology because it's 
supposed to dehumanize us in some way. I actually think the opposite is true. I think by removing all the noise and the unnecessary work and the, the uncertainty and the you know lack of resiliency in systems, we actually empower people to do better work that they have more mastery over, that they have more passion about. And it actually becomes a empowering your people kind of exercise in my mind. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, imagine if, um, you know, in IT, we had to kind of build every server from scrap metal. <laughs> I mean, how, how how horrible that would be, right? I mean, it's kind of like we're in that situation now, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not in the cloud. And, and, and what's been going on over time is we've been getting our engineers closer and closer to what the real problem is to solve, which are business problems. And I think uh, the, the closer you get to, uh, to that, the more fulfilling your job is because there's meaning behind what you're doing. Right. It's so easy to kind of lose track of that meaning when you're running cables and, you know, troubleshooting hardware and all of those things. But once you take those off the table and kind of outsource all that undifferentiated work, it's not as if the jobs are going to go away. In fact, that typically doesn't happen. Typically, you get you repurpose those folks um, to do things that are just much more meaningful. And it just you really can't emphasize enough how life changing that could be for your team, for individuals on your team to actually look forward to coming to work. I really like the way uh, Tim O'Reilly phrased this in WTF. What's the work? (laughs) What's the future? (laughs) His new book, which I highly recommend. Uh, But Tim O'Reilly said it's not about replacing people. It's about augmenting them. And he was talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I think that's it, right? Remove all the pain and empower people to do things that they couldn't otherwise do for the benefit of their customers and, frankly, for the benefit of all of us. Right. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you guys about uh, machine learning and how does migrating to cloud uh, help enable an organization to uh, utilize machine learning? So one of the things we, I talk about in the chapter on, on machine learning is that this has been around since the 1950s, and there've been lots of hype about machine learning. There are multiple cycles of funding and investment and research, and always the promise of machine learning is going to solve all of our problems. And you know, next year they're going to machines are going to be better than humans. We've heard this since 1950, all right? Uh, and all along the years and, and the time, it just was it never happened. And eventually, people gave up and they said this cannot happen. And then something strange happened um, with cloud, right? Because with cloud, now you have compute power at scale, <clears throat> you know, really, really high-end compute, like a P3 NVIDIA processor that just wasn't available f- before. And people didn't have, even if it was available, it was available only in research universities that had really deep pockets, and they could only do very, very small workloads and experiment. But now it's available at scale. If you combine that compute power that's ubiquitous and available really uh, through an API, and you combine that with all the data sources that we now have, right? Data has been locked away in silos, buried in all kinds of different systems, flat files, log files. It's all over the place. That data, once once you unlock it, you bring it into the cloud and you stick it into a data lake and you combine it with this massive compute power. Now you can actually leverage the massive scale of the data with the massive compute power to find that hidden meaning, to find those nuggets, right? You have, you have enough data available that you can train your models with. You have enough um, uh, data available that's been validated by humans, so you can actually have good training models to validate the algorithms and to validate the output. That just never ex- existed before. And in 2006, it started, and now, obviously, every year we have more compute power more storage capability uh, and better algorithms, frankly, 
I think now, if you can imagine it, you can build it at this point. Mm. I think the other thing building on that is we were as we were writing that chapter and editing it and you know removing um, the hype from that chapter bluntly uh, of you know machine learning we, we don't really talk about artificial intelligence as much as we do of machine learning there's two things that leaders need to focus on you know at a top level with machine learning and that's actually what's the business problem you're trying to solve and you know the two things that came out is actually machine learning is good in two phenomenal situations you cannot code the rules or you cannot scale. So if we had a million people to do something, identify a pattern, look at something, then of course we'd lose, use a million people, but that's uneconomic. You couldn't do it. So training a machine learning model to do that for you is a huge advantage. Or obviously in, the, in you know, you can't code the rules. One plus one equals two, but very often in the edges of this, when we want to use inference, then that's very different. So I think just making it really clear for leaders that actually in situations where you could, you know, where previously you've not been able to do, use, um, you know, use logic or scale. Now you could use machine learning to address that opens up a world of possibilities and business opportunities and customer customer enhancements. And I think making that achievable and accessible by enterprises is massive. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is also worth pointing out is in the past, uh, when you wanted to, like, if you were a research university, you would have a highly skilled, highly trained and very expensive mathematician or machine learning expert on staff who could really dig into the data. And by the way, they spent 80% of their time massaging the data before they could ever even get to an answer. We've removed all of that, again, heavy lifting, that undifferentiated heavy lifting. And we've automated much of the hard work of massaging and cleansing data, of loading, of transforming. That's one piece. And then the other piece is uh, we've built systems, AWS has built systems and, and tools like SageMaker to quote unquote democratize machine learning mm. for people who don't have the expertise and the deep knowledge in machine learning and mathematics so that people can actually now build solutions without having to know the details of how those algorithms work and how you have to prepare the data to do it. That has allowed innovation at a massive scale and then you abstract further and you get to the high level services that we have around uh, video recognition, image recognition, natural language processing, and so on. And there, the abstraction layer is so simplified that it's an API call away and you can actually build applications without knowing anything about machine learning. So that's, those are all the pieces that come together here that make this extraordinarily powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, for one, you have all your data in one place, right? Because that's going to be certainly a prerequisite for doing machine learning on it. Um, and that's a challenge in a data center environment. Um, and then, you know, you have, like you said, the compute power, nearly infinite compute power if you if you want it. Uh, so you can solve problems very quickly. And as we know, machine learning does require a lot of compute power. Of course, you could use it for a few minutes or a couple hours. It's not very expensive, but you still have access to that huge amount of compute power in order to do this work. And then probably most importantly, like you said, you have these tools that have been developed and continue to be developed that kind of democratize this, this capability because you don't know how to, you don't need to know how to build it. Um, just like with, with all the other services that AWS provides, um, you know, you're, you're taking advantage of all that work that's gone into it through the years and all that feedback that we've gotten from customers um, about what would be useful. And you just instantly have access to it at your fingertips. Um, and so you can actually get that, get that work done without having to worry so much on those implementation details. Is that a fair summary? That's a great summary, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I actually want to talk to you guys about this because I am so interested in this whole process of writing a book. Um, it's something I've been considering doing for, for a while. 
Um, and I am just dying to ask you um, what this process was like. Um, can, can we just kind of start at the beginning? Like, how did how did you guys come to the conclusion that you needed to write a book? And uh, how did you get started with it? It was Jonathan. Jonathan said, we need to think big. What's our think big idea? And he said, oh, I know. Let's write a book. And I told him, you're out of your tree. <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> But lo and behold, he was right. Here we are. Yeah, I remember that day. We were actually in the Luxembourg office, weren't we? We'd spent like a, a day doing a retrospective on our learnings. And I think we were like six, four, I, I think I was like, I don't know, five months into the job. You'd been doing it for a year. And we, we had all these lessons learned. And we were like, well, these are like customer obsessed. They're interesting. But where's the think big? And and that that was like the original catalyst. Again, you know, using the Amazon LPs, the leadership principles to just challenge ourselves. Uh, and so we like kind of noodled on it. And then I think we started getting very serious you know, after the Christmas going, actually, we need to do a better job. And I think immediately, you know, we looked at the tenants, we looked at the mind map, and then we actually had an interesting com- a decision to make really early on, which was, do you work with a publisher? You know, there's a lot of different publishers out there that people work with. Uh, and then, or actually, you know, you can self-publish with Kindle Direct Publishing. And that was a, that was a really early decision. And, and I think what we want, definitely wanted, you know, was flexibility in how we use the content and, and how we, you know, mature the content mm. and even talking today on this podcast. So we decided to self-publish using uh, Kindle Direct Publishing. We had another very, very important decision to make, American English or British English. And ha- happily, <laughs> <laughs> happily, I won that debate. <laughs> I mean, who, who in the world knows what treacle, what does is, what is treacle mean? Jake, what does treacle mean? I have no idea, but but I think I feel like he's going to get, exactly. he's going to get to make up point. for it with the uh, audible <laughs> Uh, he might do a little translation there. I have a feeling. <laughs> yes, you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm definitely going to put treacle in the audible version. It's molasses is the US translation. So, you know, we had a few of those as we were, as we were going through, that's for sure. The other thing we got completely wrong is we thought that if we really, really focused on this and dedicated time and wrote 300 pages every day, we just did the math, right? We could write this in nine months. <laughs> How long did we take, Jonathan? 21? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wildly off. Two years, uh, you know, and, and that was that was frustrating. Uh, you know, we were warned early on by other authors that it's five times harder than even you think it's going to be. And the, the I think the other thing, although, although we're, you know, pretty well read um, and, and, you know, we like to think of ourselves as having experienced a lot of these situations, when you're writing a book... Um, there's no ambiguity. It's got to be correct. You've got to know your history. You've got to speak, you know, in that topic. So you have got to spend very often, you know, hours and hours doing research around a topic, even though at your heart, you know what the lessons are. And I, we did not, uh, you know, I, I did not think of that up front, you know, hands up. And that was a big lesson learned. And in fact, how we solved that, I thought was also uniquely Amazonian because we have this concept in Amazon of the bar raiser. This is a person that helps us elevate our level. And we said, hey, why don't we find a bar raiser for each chapter? Who is the expert in that thing? And invite them to read through the chapter after we've written it and to give us constructive feedback or sometimes painful feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they didn't hold back. (laughs) You know, feedback's a gift and we got lots of them. 
the thanks to you know the bar raisers you know out there which we've we've called them out in every chapter was was just massively helpful um and just you know round your edges uh, and that of course having a copy editor thomas you know you know having a copy editor who could take our uh, you know you know our, our poor grammar even though we do pride ourselves on having the right grammar and actually turn it into something better was also incredibly useful Right. And um, I know you, you both of you have authored several blog posts on the Enterprise Strategy blog. Um, but uh, if, I, if I'm correct, this is your first book that you've done for both of you, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so even more interesting to me, you know, as first time authors of a book um, and also collaborating on it. I'd like to hear a little bit more. I mean, as, uh, eventually you, you, you figured out how, like an efficient way to work together on this, but I, but I assume in the beginning it was probably, there was a bit to work out there. You know, it was, it wasn't that hard. It was really, and it was really fun because what we did is when we, when we first started with the mind map, mind map, we just divided up the topics and said, okay, you're going to write this. I'm going to write that. There were a couple of topics where we both felt like we should both write it. Uh, it didn't happen that way. We, we wanted to have a single owner for each chapter essentially. And then we, however, took the time to read each other's work and, and give feedback. And something that was incredibly valuable uh, is actually doing it. We, we've, we've done it remotely on, in a virtual environment where we just would read together. It's something we do in Amazon anyway. Uh, but we also have managed to find time uh, in Luxembourg, in Germany, in the UK to spend two or three days of just intense work, you know, for 10 hours a day, just sitting there and writing and critiquing each other's work and polishing. Uh, and that was extraordinarily rewarding, actually. That was, I learned so much just from doing that process. Uh, I would do that again any day. I don't know about you, Jonathan, but I, I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Scheduling that time and having the discipline to, cap, to put that in your calendar. And also I've done the pre-read before those two or three days was something we learned how to do. Um, and we also, you know, just reaching back, I think uh, knowing when not to write was also really important. I think on the way back from Tokyo once, it's a long flight from Tokyo and I was jet lagged. So I was like, I'm going to be awake for 13 hours. So I'll write the target operating model chapter. And, and I wrote 20 pages of garbage. So, you know, knowing that you get back and Thomas was going, I've got no idea what you've written here, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and, and taking that feedback on and going, okay, let's break it down. Because interestingly, you know, the target operating model is one of the chapters that I would turn to immediately. And in fact, we even open it going, if you've started on this chapter, a lot of this chapter won't make sense <laughs> because you're missing some of the concepts that build up to this chapter. And I think almost so recognizing, you know, when not to write is almost as important as knowing when to write, because otherwise you, you're just going to spin your wheels. And on that note, you know, everyone tells you this, but you don't really believe it until it happens. The hardest, hardest part is editing at the end. Mark Schwartz told us, you know, whatever you have written, you probably can do with 30% less and still get the same message out better. Uh, and it is, that is the absolute, the hardest piece is, is cutting out all the noise and by the way, you know, I'm reading through this. I actually think we could do even better, but at some point you just have to call it done and move on. Yeah, Mark, Mark's, you know, written three books previously. His fourth book's coming out soon, The Art of Bureaucracy. And his, you know, he read the whole book and gave us 
four pages of feedback. Do you remember, Thomas, where we had like four pages, in true Amazonian style, four pages of feedback. And, and we kind of sat there and read it and there was highs, there was lows, there's bits where I wanted to cry and there's bits where I wanted to scream with joy. And, and, and I think what, what, you know, that what we took off the back of that was we, we actually took a, a, I think a six week pause, a, a six week delay, didn't we? Off the back of Mark's feedback and pivoted and rewrote and zipped it together and deleted some. And, you know, a lot went on the cutting room floor at that point, but Mark's help was utterly invaluable. And I think as were, you know, just talking to, you know, Adrian Cockcroft also wrote uh, a foreword as did Mark and, and Werner kindly wrote a foreword as well and all giving very different perspectives in tee-ups and their help was was absolutely invaluable. Don't do it alone because it's it's pretty easy to not hold, you know, uh, uh, Amazon will keep you busy, right? We know this um, as we, you know, help customers. So you've got to, you've got to make the time. Um, and that's the other thing I think is probably being a little bit more structured uh, of making that time early on would have helped. Yeah. Funny story. So uh, you kindly uh, gave me an advanced copy of the book to, to, to read and give feedback on. And uh, uh, it was a privilege to do that. Uh, it's kind of funny because I immediately skipped to that target operating model chapter and then was uh, greeted with, if you've skipped to this chapter, and I was like, how did he know? we've had that a few times and again I think just bringing that empathetic angle to it because it's interesting Jake you know in in the executive briefings that you do and I do and Thomas does one of the very first questions that leaders quite rightly ask is well what should my operating model look like because you know you're nothing without your humans the humans that work with you and um, but that said you know you can't stroll straight into concepts around DevOps and culture and teaming and reskilling and and using you know until you've done some groundwork, you know, uh, you're not going to understand actually some some of that prenup, as it were. And by the way, this is actually the chapter that kind of breaks the rule that I talked about earlier, uh, allowing people to just dive into what they want to need, they want to know. This one, <laughs> you need some pre work. <laughs> it's the end. All the other ones, just go ahead and read them. <laughs> well, you know, the reason I skipped to it is because I, I just wanted. I was simply curious. What is going to be your prescriptive guidance there because it was the one you know looking at all the chapters i think a lot of them um, i was sure i was going to agree with everything that you said right but but on that one i was like uh, let's see you know i'm really curious what what your opinion if you really have to put it on paper and publish it what what would your stance be and so that's kind of why i skipped I feel like probably a lot of people have that same thought process. Yeah, you know, in that chapter, we just we just try to fill the gap. You know, people talk about, and we get asked a lot, how does Amazon organize? You know, how does it organize? You know, all of these small two pizza teams. How do general managers work? And that's that's a heck of a leap. You know, it was for me when I was a customer, and we try to bridge that gap with that chapter. Yeah, excellent. So, by the way, what what do you guys have favorite chapters, and uh, are are any of them? particularly uh, controversial? Uh, so I'll go on this. I like the resiliency and reliability chapter. Uh, it's not controversial in any way. And, uh, you know, I, I was really privileged to work with Adrian Hornsby, one of our, you know, uh, principal technical evangelists on that chapter. And I kindly leveraged a lot of his thought in that space and really breaking down just some of the math behind um, why things have gone wrong in the past. And really sort of from the ground up, what are some of the four or five key benefits that you can take advantage for? Um, um, to, you know, leapfrog into a better place um, because you don't know what you don't know. 
you know, when you're going to cloud as a leader, I think it was really insightful for me to work with, you know, Adrian, but come from an empathetic point of view that if you get into a tricky situation with it, with outages and you can't actually escape them to get to a better place, you're almost always falling backwards. And that's not a good place for, you know, for us to be. So uh, the resiliency and, and reliability chapter is my personal favorite. Yeah. And I, so I, I have a, maybe not a favorite, but the one that I'm perhaps most proud of is the security chapter. Because it was the hardest bar none to write. Uh, it actually took longer probably than any other chapter uh, and required, you know, because this is of all the chapters, this one has to be right. And so we spent a lot of time with uh, with colleagues from the CISO's office who helped us tremendously, you know, really articulate the security components appropriately. Um, so I'm very, very proud of it. It's really hard. It's, a, it's an important and difficult topic, but I think we covered it in such a way that executives can understand and then they can deep dive with our security team to really get at the nitty gritty when the time comes. And it is the longest chapter, Thomas. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, of, of course, you know, it is called security is always job zero, you know, for a reason uh, at AWS. Uh, and I think building on that, you know, part seven, the governance, you know, chapter for very similar reasons to that Thomas spoke about was also something that required, you know, for me to actually do a lot of history reading on well, where has well-managed come from? You know, where has GRC come from? And to actually get the history correct, really correct, it, you know, moving forward uh, on that topic was also, you know, um, one to be exceptionally and rightly careful with. Yeah, it feels like that is something that could be kind of expanded upon uh, in the future. So kind of speaking of that, what, what, are, you, what are your plans for the future? Is there going to be a sequel to this? Uh, another book? Uh, sounded like there's going to be updates, perhaps. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, obviously we published it, you know, in April, uh, right in in the middle uh, of the pandemic opening. So we really did, and quite rightly at the time, zero publicity for it. And but by word of mouth, it's it's actually the word has got out. And, and a lot of people have, have, have enjoyed the book and we've had some great feedback. And I think as we look to the future, obviously AWS has not stopped innovating in any way and the pace of new services and new features continues to grow. And we want to make sure that the content in the book reflects the latest and greatest in that regard. So we're looking at, you know, what a 2021 version update could look like. Um, we're also, um, you know, looking at which chapters could, you know, um, come in. Yep. And, you know, this, I, I, I kind of, this, this writing the book as, as tremendously challenging and exciting as it was, uh, I, I, it, I have the bug now. I, I want to write more. Uh, so not just, you know, updating the book, which we will do, but uh, I'm thinking about a couple of other things that could be turned into a book. Uh, for instance, just to say it out loud, you know, how, what does innovation cloud technology allow us? To do to to support sustainability in the world, right? To accelerate that process for customers, because most customers have some kind of sustainability angle now or a desire to to change things. And I think there's a very important role that AWS and how we innovate can help in that process, can play in that process. But there are others, other topics to write about as well. So I'll be looking to both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's a good one. I think um, I could come come up with a few as well. There's just so much great material here. But you know, as as we've discussed, you know, it's not. It's definitely a process to write one. So choosing kind of the right topic, you know, probably be careful with that. What advice would you give to somebody who's considering writing a book for the first time? You know, if you could do it over again, what advice would you give yourself? 
Uh, there's, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot of lessons learned, Thomas. I don't know if you want to go, but you know, I think you've got to understand your audience. You may think you know them, but you've actually got to really understand what is my audience and are you writing for something that is a problem that they want to understand how to solve? That's a huge sort of lesson learned. For us, it was, you know, working in a symbiotic, you know, partnership to, to, to keep and hold each other accountable on what we needed to do to get it over the line. Um, and as always, recognizing what you're good at and being very honest with what you're not good at. Um, and if you can find somebody to do that, to bring it together, hugely powerful. I couldn't have done it on my own. Not, not a chance. Yeah. Same. And, and just getting rid of the excuses. There's always a reason not to write and just sit down and do it, right? And even if it's just, you know, 300 words, it's a page, just get something out knowing fully well that at the end of the day, half of that or more than half of that will never see the light of day and will wind up on the, wind up on the, on the cutting floor. But the, 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 the effort or the exercise of writing often mm. really helps. And then the other thing that I just discovered and I wish I had discovered two years ago uh, is a way of taking notes based on a, on a variety of books that were written. This is an author, uh, Luhmann, who wrote 60 different books on social sciences in his career. And he devised a method of taking notes that I'm going to certainly embrace called the Zettelkasten, <laughs> Zettelkasten in American <laughs> methodology. <laughs> and it's so, if, it, you know, obviously it's too much to explain now, but I think it's an extraordinary way to create notes. Think of what the internet was supposed to be namely a bi-directional <laughs> link of information before Tim Berners-Lee actually did half of it, which was a, a unidirectional link. The Settlecust method is a bi-directional link. Every time you create a note, you link it to some other piece of information and you can pull it all together when you're writing the book so that you have all the information. Because we spend a lot of time looking for references, researching, looking for the quotes. I remember reading some time ago that you know Tim Berners-Lee wrote this really cool quote. What was it? Mm. That took a lot of time. And so just having a discipline every day of keeping these notes as they come up, when you read a book, you see a good quote, collecting it in a way that you can get to it. Right. That's something that I'm going to incorporate into my life now going forward. Yeah. And then the final lesson learned for me was even when you're done writing, recognize you've probably got <laughs> another third of the time ahead to do graphics, to do artists, to do layout, to do proofreading, to do copy editing, you know, to get feedback, to get the full words done, you know, to get proofs physically of the book and then realize things aren't right. And you've got to go back and change things. You know, I think do not underestimate that time. Um, and then that's not even doing, you know, the, the, um, Kindle layout, which again, uh, need, needs to be done. So I think that was the big lesson learned for me. So I think utterly invaluable experience for me personally. I've loved, you know, working with Thomas and, and doing it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember halfway through the book, Mark Schwartz saying to me, don't worry when you've done one, you want to do another one. And me going, never, I'll never do that again. And, and now it's over the line. I'm like, hmm, yeah, maybe I would do another one. Right. Fantastic. Uh, well, guys, I could I could talk to you probably all day if you let me. So I think we'll we'll end here and hopefully we could do uh, do this again because I still have a lot of questions for you and I'm sure our audience wants to hear more about uh, the process and the content in the book um, and and what you learned uh, in writing it and and what's next. So um, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. It was great learning more about the reason why this book is needed. Like AWS Cloud Technology, it's good to hear the book will evolve and grow. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel. See you next time.